0: Hi hey everyone, this is Andrew Johnson,
1: and this is Jake Reiner,
0: and you're listening to No Contest, a Know All Studio podcast, a series of conversations with placemakers on the stuff that makes us human and the stuff that humans make.
1: We're speaking today with Asier Larea, CEO of Ori. Ori provides space-saving, transformable furniture and architecture. You may have seen Ori recently in the New York Times, Design Milk, Business Insider, and other major publications. And you may be lucky enough to live in a community featuring Ori Solutions. Assier. thank you for joining us today. Hey, how are you doing, guys? We're doing well. It's good to see you again. Yeah, yeah, good to see you. Um, for, for the listeners, uh, we're, we're looking at an Ori Solution in the background here with Assier, And uh, it's always good to, to meet a CEO who uh, is using his own product.
2: Absolutely. You, you know, there's this expression in entrepreneurship, which is uh, they say you have to eat your own dog food. Uh, so that's what I'm doing here. Uh, I actually have three Ori products in my apartment. I live in a one bedroom uh, with my partner and we have three Ori products. So it's been, it's been quite an experience. Uh,
1: Amazing. So cool. Um, okay, so before we, we jump into Ori itself, I'd love to give listeners a sense of your background. Where did you grow up? What was your family like? What was your impression of the world?
2: Yeah, so... As you can tell both from my accent and my name, uh, I'm not, not from the U S uh, I was actually born in, in the Basque region of Spain. So my name is actually Basque, uh, Acier, uh, which makes me, gets me in a lot of trouble in the U S uh, it's a, such a complicated name, but, uh, that's where I was born. Uh, I mean, I mean, two, two kind of big influences for me, I would say, um, uh, you know, uh, you know, in, in the vast country. Of course, fa- family was, has always been a big influence for me. And actually a lot of the values that I've been trying to kind of bring into Ori as a company are the things that, that my parents and my sisters kind of taught me. So things around, you know, being authentic, uh, you know, and, and basically do, doing things when people don't watch that you would also do when people watch. Uh, also things like, you know, being curious and being an, an active kind of learner because in this life, it's all about learning, learning, learning the person that learns the most, the most success that person has. And then also, you know, genuinely caring about each other uh, and about other people's problems. So these are things I really try to kind of bring into into now a company and kind of the values of a company. But, but that's, you know, things I learned from my family. And then secondly, I actually was, uh, not many people know, but I actually was going through a professional soccer career or football, uh, as we like to call it,
1: the real football. Uh, right. And, and, and if you're from the Basque, sorry to interrupt here, but if you're from the Basque region, does that mean you're a Barcelona supporter?
2: No, I'm actually, so my team uh, is Real Sociedad, which is not okay. at the same level as Real Madrid or Barcelona, but it's like pretty top team in Spain. So I was going through the whole like youth Academy. At some point I had to choose between engineering and, and soccer because unfortunately we don't have the, the college sports that you do here. But there's other things also I learned from that experience that have, be, have been very handy. Uh, for being an entrepreneur and and leading a company you know and things like you know optimism and perseverance which is something that you need as an entrepreneur and you learn from sports you know games don't always go as you think they're gonna go and you're winning and then you're losing and then you're winning again and it's kind of chaos and you just need to adjust to it and that's very much the life of of a startup but also this idea of you know everybody being in the same boat you know and this idea in a company for example that there's no job too high or too big or too small for anybody same thing in sports like if you're a forward and because of the moment of the game you get caught in defense you need to defend like any other defender so so i think those are things that of course you know as i was growing up um in spain and in the basque country you know it it definitely you know helped me now uh in, in my career
1: that's awesome yeah i didn't i didn't know that about you i mean um I'm also a, a soccer player and soccer aficionado. And I think, I think now we're destined for a, a pickup game when I'm next in, in New York City. Absolutely.
2: <laughs>
1: so, so, you have this amazing you know, experience growing up in, in Spain. And um, obviously, those values have, have translated quite a bit to what you do today. Um, in between, it sounds like you, you moved to the States and you spent some time in the States. Can you talk about those early experiences? In college and graduate school, yep. and how those shaped your direction and thinking?
2: Absolutely. So first of all, I actually did my undergrad and my master's in mechanical engineering in, uh, in Spain, uh, in San Sebastian, where I'm from. And I was one of those engineers, probably like many engineers, uh, that was doubting between architecture and engineering, like those kind of initial doubts. I mean, you're 18 years old, you still don't know what to do with life. So So I ended up choosing engineering because it felt a bit more open, uh, whereas architecture felt more vocational. uh, And with engineering, it felt like there was more ways kind of to to adjust kind of plans later on. This will kind of make sense later uh, as as the story goes on on how kind of things connect later on. But but that's how I I decided to do engineering. And then I I was lucky enough as I was going through my mechanical engineering, like masters, I had the chance to come to the States for a six-month visiting researcher or student uh, position uh, in Boston uh, at MIT, at the MIT Media Lab. And that's kind of of where everything changed, because I was supposed to be here in the States for six months, and I just fell in love uh, with the work that was happening around innovation at a place like like MIT.
1: Yeah, talk a little bit about the Media Lab. I mean, I've done some cursory research. I think I I recently watched a, a documentary about the team, and it seems like there's um, some interesting stuff going on there, in particular, bringing in all of these multidisciplinary ideas into tracks that are typically very verticalized, very you know one path. Um, how, what was that experience like? Does, does that ring true to you? And then yeah. also, how has that reflected in your early thinking about Ori? So,
2: I mean, it was absolutely eye opening to me because the one thing I learned about was this concept of serendipity or accidentally on purpose, uh, and the idea that the best ideas happen in between these disciplines. So what, what the Media Lab used to say is that we were anti, anti-disciplinary. Uh, and, that was, that was, and I remember one of my favorite projects, and I don't know if I'm gonna tell the story perfectly, but one of my favorite projects of the MIT Media Lab since it started is this concept that started as research uh, with Yoyo Ma, with a cello player, that then got applied into like some kind of magician kind of show with pen and Teller. Uh, same technology applied from a cello player kind of thinking about how you augment the way you, you play a cello ends up in a magical kind of chair or something with magicians and then the same technology ends up in a, in a passenger seat in a car saving kids lives and telling the airbag when and when not to kind of activate. So a great example of something that starts here ends up somewhere completely different but it ends up saving lives when it was supposed to kind of improve the performance of a, of a cello player. So I got very inspired by that and kind of connecting the dots with my origins and thinking about architecture and, and and engineering. What I found fascinating is that you get to the Media Lab, to a place like the Media Lab, and all of a sudden you see like everything is upside down. So you get architects working on cars, engineers working on homes is kind of the opposite musicians you know programming while programmers are playing music you know like all these kind of rogues kind of coming together and coming up with with great ideas and trying to solve big big problems so it was i was going to be there for six months i ended up being there for for half a decade Uh, so that tells you how kind of influential it was to me and it, it really influenced the way kind of my work and my team's work around architecture and robotics came together it was about really combining disciplines and taking the things that we had learned, for example, in engineering and all my kind of undergrad and master studies and how we could apply them now to, to architecture.
1: That's so cool. Um, before, before we get into Ori itself, was there anyone else part of your cohort or, or group at MIT Lab who has gone on to commercialize uh, something special like Ori um, that originated in, in, in that amazing interdisciplinary space?
2: I mean, there's been a, I mean, I don't know like specifically about my year. Uh, I know there's some, some cool things going on about generative design, about, you know, augmented limbs uh, for amputees and that they're like, you know, starting to that journey, kind of entrepreneurial journey. But if you look back, I mean, there's been, you know, innovations like, for example, one of the famous ones is uh, Guitar Hero. Uh, two students out of the media lab working on, on instruments and technologies, you know, they, they invented the Guitar Hero, of course, one of the most sold. Uh, video game server Uh, e-ink you know the electronic ink that you see on those kindles that was also an innovation that came out of it so so there's been there's been quite a few kind of things and not only in entrepreneurs or startups but keep in mind that the media lab is sponsored by a group of you know big companies from the googles and the samsungs of the world uh to the you know panasonics etc so a lot of those innovations actually came to be key innovations uh in some of those products from those from those companies
0: well, what we do know is you got to be smart.
1: Yeah, exactly. And, and a, little, a little bit crazy, too. Right, right. You wonder about those those folks who invented Guitar Hero, if they were studying college students sitting in their dorm looking for an activity, like, late, late at night, uh, if that was their their core demographic when they were thinking of it.
2: Yeah, it's. I mean, usually these innovations are a series of accidents, you know, and things that you try and don't work, and then all of a sudden you kind of hit the nail on the head. So I find it fascinating when you look at stories like that, like the Harmonics people, or even like like iRobot, another kind of great Boston company coming out of not the Media Lab but MIT, like where they they will tell you that they were like uh, you know you know overnight successes, ten years in the making, uh, right. where they try things for for you know like all these types of angles, and at some point they kind of got that that tipping point. So that that's where it connects back to something that I said I said at the beginning, which is perseverance and optimism. You know. you keep fighting, if you take every kind of failure as a badge of honor, you know, at some point, you know, like stars will align, you know, you just need to be working very hard.
1: Right. Of course. Cool. So shifting gears here, let's, let's dive into Ori a little bit Um, for the, for the listeners. What's Ori today? And also uh, talk a little bit about the name Ori, how how you got that and what it means. Yeah. So Ori comes from origami,
2: actually. From the, from the Japanese, uh, it means to fold. Uh, and especially as we think about a space and a, as we think about what Ori does accompany, we're trying to fold space, you know, in the sense that we're trying to make a space be whatever you need at every moment. So fold into every occasion uh, and adapt into your needs. Uh, so a lot of inspiration from that. If you look at our logo on our website, orreliving.com, you will see it's actually an origami uh, type logo. Um, And the company itself, you know, we're trying to really, like, change, you know, in big terms, we're trying to change the perception of space. We're trying to multiply the space. And why is that important? It is important in the world we're going to because we believe that two of the biggest crises in real estate today are sustainability and affordability, or the lack of sustainability and the lack of affordability. So we believe that our best contribution as a company to those two challenges is to prove to people that they don't need as much space as they think they need. And the way we do it is by really bringing robotics and the best we've seen in other industries like automotive, like garage door openers and appliances, bringing that into architecture, bringing that into furniture and creating spaces, you know, uh, walls, beds, you know, Closets, offices that transform and give us exactly what we need at every moment. The same way we think about, you know, mobility on demand or energy on demand, television on demand with Netflix. What if we could think about a space on demand? What if every room that you have could be whatever you need at every at every moment?
1: That's interesting. Um, I, you know, Andrew and I have have done a lot of consumer research across the country, a lot of different markets with with different folks and. The thing that that keeps coming up is we've kind of trained the market to think about space in terms of square footage. Um, so our consumers are are asking about square footage. You're in the process of of training them to think about efficiency and uh, and and modularity and and multivalent solutions. Um, seems like a, a good challenge to take on and and one that you guys have have thought quite a bit about.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's it's funny because I mean you mentioned this idea of
2: Like, how do you change a paradigm or something like people have been born with? And and there is this, I mean, there's this book, I'm sure you guys are familiar with, uh, Zero to One by by Peter Thiel. And he talks about something interesting. I don't know if I'm going to quote it exactly, but he says something like, when you're looking at kind of innovations uh, and those pockets of disruption, like try to find those truths that very few people agree with you on. and one of those truths, the way we see it, is that every square foot is not born equal. We believe that a square footage does not equal functionality or is not proportional to functionality. But that's a concept that almost everybody has been born with. Uh, and we are trained since we are very young to think about more square footage, more functionality. The way you rent or look for an apartment is, oh, it's a two-bedroom you know, 950 square feet apartment. And if I tell you I have a 1,200 square feet apartment in the same floor, in the same building, you're going to assume that one is more functional. So we're trying to break that. Uh, We believe that's one of the the idea that square footage and functionality are kind of proportional. We believe it's one of the oldest lies that exist. Uh, We're trying to disrupt that. And the way you disrupt that is with technology. So we're really trying to change behavior uh, that's the big idea and really think of sustainability and affordability as, as that, you know, if you can feed more people in the same buildings, that's going to be the most sustainable building. If you ca- if you have to pay for less square footage, that's going to be the most affordable square footage, but do it in a way that you are not sacrificing functionality. What if the smaller footprint could be actually the best option and the most amazing functionality and space you could ever have.
0: It's, it's interesting you say that because, you know, Jake and I recently were in, in Minneapolis and square footage was something they really pushed. And from, from our perspective, hearing a number didn't really resonate, right? 300 square foot versus 500 square foot. It's all, it's all numbers in the end. But when you get into this space and how tall the ceilings are, how they've utilized it and designed it and programmed it, because when Jake and I looked at each other, it's like, this could have been 200 square feet versus 500. It would have been the same thing in, in retrospect. So, Looking at technology and how you program it and use that to your advantage of kind of squashing square footage is, is genius. It makes total sense. And I
2: mean, it's interesting because when we started, and this was back at MIT, even before we launched the company, but we, we did an experiment. And we tried to kind of break, break kind of this model. And we actually built a 200 square feet apartment. And with this, we did not mean that these technologies are only built for 200 micro units, uh, 200 square feet micro units. This could be built for all kinds of apartments. At the end of the day. Uh, you know, every square foot is valuable. Uh, but what we did there was kind of start changing that mentality because 200 square feet, when you tell kind of almost anybody, they would tell you, they would react as, a, oh, that's a shoebox, dysfunctional prison cell. I don't want to live there. But if you change a little bit of the scope and you say, what do you think about a 200 square feet bedroom? And they would say, well, that's, that's a good bedroom. That's a nice size bedroom. Okay, well, what do you think about a 200 square feet home office? Oh, well, that's much better than the home office I have right now on a corner of my living room. What about a 200 square feet dining room? Oh, I don't even have a dining room. Uh, What about a 200 square feet bathroom? Wow, that's like a five-star hotel bathroom. Now, the reality in that space specifically is that you are not using all those functionalities at the same time. So what if a space could load almost the same way an app loads on your phone? What if it could load to give you the functionalities that you need at every moment? At that point, that's not 200 square feet. Uh, of the in the traditional sense, uh, and that's how we think about it. And that was kind of an experiment we did. You can find it in YouTube if you type MIT City Home. Uh, you will see a young me uh, doing a conga dance there at the end. Uh, a bit embarrassing, <laughs> but but basically you will see a small kind of apartment where we really try to push those concepts. And it was really the the birth of the of the concepts behind behind Ori.
1: That's great. So I guess let's continue on this on this theme here. Um, yeah. I, I only met you when Ori was. Uh, pretty mature company. And uh, I don't really actually know. Like tell tell me about the history of Ori. How did you go from that conga dance to to where <laughs> you are today, from, from pie in the sky idea and experiment to you know fully, fully commercialized and out there in the wild. Yeah. So I mean we had we
2: were lacking the sense that when we launched the company, you know, we basically had a team that had been working together for almost five years. So, our founding team. We had, of course, you know, Professor Ken Larson, who is a uh, you know kind of a, a guru of of cities and innovation. But then I had these amazing you know, engineers from mechanics to electronics to software uh, in the team. You know, Carlos, Ivan, and Chad uh, that we kind of started a company with. So we had that first like you know uh, advantage because we were starting a company with people that had been building these technologies for for at least five years uh, at MIT. And then we were also lucky that we got accepted. That was 2015 so time flies uh, more than a half decade ago we were accepted by an accelerator at mit uh, called Del- delta v very kind of mit type name uh like you know delta velocity kind of thing um and and basically you know that was a great model where you know for three months after graduation they kind of helped you figure out your your initial kind of market your initial product and and the one thing i remember really well and this was a bit counterintuitive. Being MIT, is that the first thing that they told us was to like stop stop building technology like for for, for a month. You're not gonna work on the product. You know, you're just gonna go out there and talk to people. You know, and that was kind of, that's kind of what we did. You know, we had a lot of kind of technology, in, uh, but we didn't want to kind of create a technology like looking for a problem. We actually went out there, and we started meeting with like dozens, if not hundreds, of people living in small apartments specifically and in a studio. Were, were these your friends or how, how did you find them? A living of everything. Uh, some of that was, I, I do remember still on my graduation ceremony at MIT with a notebook on the stands uh, and basically knowing that everybody sitting around me was kind of our cohort of you know, young professionals going into the market. So I, w- I remember doing like 10 interviews right there as we were waiting for, for the names uh, to come uh, for us to go and get our diploma, uh, our degree. But at the same time, we started reaching out, you know, through friends of friends of friends. So at some point, we didn't know the people, but we actually did like uh, in-person visits. We were in apartments across Boston, going into studio apartments and learning kind of how people were struggling with those spaces. And it was interesting because that research, and we can get very specific here, but really gave birth to our first product. Like we we did learn three things. Like it was interesting, like as we're talking to all these people, as we talked to 20, 30, 40, 50 people we started seeing how people were complaining about the same things. So for example, in a studio apartments, um, and hopefully some of our listeners can relate to this, uh, people were complaining about number one, lack of separation of space, especially for couples. So when you live in a studio and you live with another person, it's one space. So it's really hard to have two activities happening at the same time. Number two was lack of a proper living area or dining area. In today's world, it would be lack of a proper office area, but the idea being that your your studio feels like a hotel room, like a bedroom. So it was hard for people to bring friends over, socialize, even get work done. Uh, And the last one was lack of storage, which is really a problem no matter what size of an apartment you're thinking about these days. So that was another issue. So when you look at, at, at our first product, which is called the Ori Studio Suite, which is really Studio Suite because it was really focused on studios. It was a system that was basically this robotic, and it is this robotic wall system that moves across the apartment so that it can separate the space and gives you two spaces. It can hide your bed at the press of a button, of course, or your voice, so that your bed disappears and your whole apartment becomes an office or a a dining area. And then it has a ton of storage. So it has a full walk-in closet integrated. So that was an example of really listening to the market, going out there, talking to people, and really now adjusting our technology backbone to to respond to those those needs.
1: That's great. Um, Very human-centered design, totally in line with our thinking. Uh, I wish I was a fly on the wall during those those home visits. It sounds Mm -hmm. like you uncovered a lot of good jobs to be done and you found your path. Exactly. So um, you know, one thing we talked about quite a bit, you and me, Andrew, um, is that innovation in real estate is, is tough. It is, um, it's one of those, those industries where there's unbound opportunity, um, but you're moving a cruise ship, right? You're doing a lot of work to, to change the way that people behave. When you yeah. were in those early days, um, probably not as early as um, when you were running ethnographic research in your friends' living rooms, but a little later on, did you have a sense of, of the headwinds in the space um, and if you did, you know, did you plan for it? How, how did that work? I mean,
2: I think we were definitely a little bit naive. Uh, I think we had heard everything about, you know, oh, there's a reason why real estate has not changed in so many years. Uh, I, I also have fun when I look at, at floor plans. And uh, I, I, sometimes I do these talks and I show like a floor plan Uh, from my parents' apartment in Spain. And then I show it compared to a Roman empire kind of like cap time floor plan. And it's literally the same thing, uh, 2,000 years apart. But but still, I think when you come out of a place like MIT, you're of course an optimistic. uh, And I think I was a little bit naive and we were a little bit naive as a company thinking that, oh, just because we have this cool, awesome idea, this is just gonna go incredibly quickly. uh, And it's gonna get adopted super quickly. Uh, and I think a little bit of one of those wake up calls was when I had one of uh, the senior VPs of one of these big kind of developers in the country stay in one of our apartments. And she, she absolutely loved it. But I remember she told me when, when she was leaving, she said like, Asir, I mean, this is the future. I mean, this is going to happen, but we are not going to be first. <laughs> so that's a classic, you know, so, so these were, you, you get these kind of two sides of the same of the same coin, which is the, the, the disadvantage the big disadvantage is that you know technologies. There's a lot of a like chicken and egg problem uh, with with real estate in many cases. Like everybody kind of sees it, they see it's the future, but everybody wants someone else to try it first. Of course, at some point you need someone to do it first. Uh, but that, but then there's a moment, and I think we're kind of getting there now as a company, uh, especially looking at how many more installations we're doing every year. Where there's such a herd mentality on this industry, where once you cross some kind of chasm. Then when the industry adopts, it adopts, you know, capital letters, adopts. Uh, Because of that her mentality, it becomes a standard of the industry. And the industry is so massive that there's big winners coming out of that. So it's like what makes it hard makes it also, you know, very valuable in the long term. But it is at the beginning, it can be a little bit off-putting. And you just need to kind of continue with optimism and with a smile. uh, Because, you know, at the end of the day, the price is really, really big.
1: That's great. Um, I, I always uh, have appreciated your unbound optimism and I, I think Andrew and I definitely are taking a similar approach where um, there are some principles and, and ideas that will have such a large impact on so many people across the, the world that it's yeah. worth a fight and um, it's good to have a, another fighter in the ring.
2: I think I love you say that because I'm, I'm trying to remember whose who's quote is this It has to be like Winston Churchill or one of these guys that says something like like success is something like going from failure to failure without losing the optimism,
1: kind of without losing kind of the smile, uh, and and that's kind of it in some sense. That's great. Um, so you know you have you've had a, a long run at this relatively for a startup, uh, especially a startup with a, a physical product. Um, what role has fundraising played in in these you know last several years in in helping you all achieve your goals?
2: I mean, so I mean, fundraising is. I mean, without fundraising, it's really hard to, to do anything. At the end of the day, you can have the best ideas ever, but you need the resources to make them happen. And when I look at my role as a CEO specifically, I would say it's really about vision, setting the vision for the for the ship and the direction. But it's also making sure there's gasoline, uh, or or electric motors uh, for that matter, uh, on the engines uh, so that this can move. And that's kind of what fundraising is at the end. So it's not, I don't think it's fundraising for the sake of fundraising, but it's really a way to, to show that the idea, you know, the traction and the metrics are there for the business and really kind of always looking at kind of what is the next milestone that can get my team to get the resources that we need to get to the next level. Now, what makes it hard, uh, no, I'm, I'm giving, I'm giving a lot of quotes here uh, from other people, but uh, I think it was, I think I heard like Elon Musk saying something like, like being CEO was something like, like a staring at the abyss. Uh, and eating glass, uh, and, and the staring at the abyss, I think, is really related to fundraising, and how, as a startup, you are kind of always looking at at, at kind of your demise in some way, because, or, or the, you know, like, the end of the road, because you do need to kind of get, I, I, until you get to a point where you are kind of uh, profitable, like, you are, you're always looking at a, at a due date in some, in some way, so it's always kind of tough to handle that, uh, and the second part, of course, is that, you know, CEO, you always have this filter for the hardest problems uh, in a company. If there's an easy problem, no one is going to ask you. But when there's like a hard problem, it's going to come to you. Uh, and that's why it's it's a tough uh, it's a tough job, but at the same time, very very full, fulfilling.
1: That's great. It, it, it uh, going back to our soccer conversation, um, it reminds me. I, I recently rewatched the Apple TV show, which I highly endorse, Ted Lasso, um, about a, a a U.S. football American football coach who goes over to England coaches the EPL and he tells his center forward he says um, Sam what is the animal with the uh, the shortest memory and Sam's like I don't, I don't know and Ted, Ted says it's a goldfish be a goldfish and I think to some degree as a CEO you have to be a goldfish and you have to um, you have to continuously work towards your goals and and be optimistic and kind of uh, Collect all the important nuggets of, of wisdom that you get in, in tough moments, but but continue on regardless. Yeah, and and not never be afraid of changing everything. You know, don't get
2: too attached to your old ideas because all ideas are irrelevant. Like if the context changes, uh, you just need to kind of stop thinking about what we were doing in the past and think about the future all the time. So there's definitely quite quite a bit of that.
0: Hasir, I do have a question on the, on the topic of challenges, right? Like, what, what has been the challenge of ORI? Is it, you know, trying to sell this concept of this large module unit going into small apartments? Has it been the cost? Has it been the maintenance, the upkeep? Uh, I'm, I'm curious.
2: No, I mean, it's never been the technology itself, to be honest, because that's, I mean, we, it's been at this point between MIT and, and ORI, it's been a decade in the making. So we really perfected everything around reliability, safety, et cetera. The challenges, I mean, I would say, I mean, the first challenge, of course, was that if you had asked me this question six, seven years ago, I would have told you like, yeah, like going from one prototype that has to work once to like hundreds, if not thousands of systems that have to work always. There's a lot of technical challenges, but we definitely figured all those out. We keep improving, improving, of course. I think the biggest challenge, I think, goes back to the question before, which is how do you make an industry adopt, you know? Um, and how do you kind of get to that critical mass where enough people are seeing this that enough people are saying like, well, like I cannot go back to where I was living before now that I have these technologies at my my fingertip. So there's a little bit of that. And of course, this idea of of the chicken and egg problem of if everybody wants to see, if every developer wants to see somebody else do it first, at some point, you need to find the few that are going to do it without any kind of case study or, or reference, and then the more that you do, the more that the flywheel starts uh, moving, you know? And that's kind of, so that's been, that's been a tough part in the sense that if you had asked me, like optimistic me five years ago, I would have thought that we would be where we are today in half the time. <laughs> uh, but it did take us some time to get here. Uh, but, but it's kind of, it's kind of what it is. And, and when you talk to other entrepreneurs in this industry, they will tell you the same thing.
0: Yeah, that makes sense.
1: So on, on that theme, I, I, you know, I think it's a no brainer to want to live in a community with, with Ori and to want to live in a, in a unit with Ori. Um, we talked a lot about the fact that in the United States, 50% of tenants turn over year over year, which is just like such a remarkable number, especially if you consider the, um, the, the incredible switching cost of moving, of paying for boxes and tape and working with sketchy movers. Um, how what influence can Ori have on on making those those tenants, um, those residents feel more connected to their spaces? Mm-hmm. I mean, f- funny you bring that up about retention because I think si- since I think you were the
2: first person that told me this thing of uh, Jake, this thing of like like real estate rentals is the worst subscription model ever invented kind of a thing <laughs> with 50% churn rate. Like I would be totally unacceptable when you think about any other like software subscription models out there. So I've, I've been talking a, a lot about that. I always give you credit uh, for bringing that up to me. Don't worry. Uh, but it, it's, it's kind of fascinating. And, and I think, you know, part of that is that I think when we think or when people think about apartments, it's almost, I'm going to make an analogy here. I don't know if it's perfect, but it's almost like T-shirt sizes, you know, like when you think about, you know, a small, medium, large, and then in apartment buildings, you think about studios, one bedrooms, two bedrooms, kind of three bedrooms. And I think what we're trying to do here, apart from improving that experience of what it is today, you know, daily kind of live in in an apartment in the city, we're trying to stretch those sizes, you know. So at the end of the day, if your studio truly feels more like a one bedroom, you're going to be able to spend more time um, in that space without having to kind of go up into paying more money for a bigger space. So that's where we see helping kind of that retention story. You know, by really you know, uh, increasing uh, the amount of functionality that a space has. Of course, that's only one part of the story. Uh, the way developers think about it, too, is you know, at the end of the day, developers are thinking about return on investment. So you can achieve that either by increasing the retention, which is what we just talked about. You can also do that by increasing the price per square foot. So at the end of the day, if you have a, a one-bedroom that feels more like a two-bedroom, the tenant is gonna get a more affordable two bedroom, uh, in the sense that this one bedroom feels more like the two bedroom, but the, the developer is gonna get more price per square foot. The last one is really about differentiation. You know, at the end of the day, we see so much of the, you know, this sea of sameness that you guys always talk about. Uh, and the idea of saying, like, look, like you are now differentiating your property and your apartment typologies from the competition kind of across the street, which helps lease up. And we have plenty of examples right now across the country where some buildings are, are kind of optimizing for price per square foot. Some other buildings are optimizing for leasing as fast as they can. Some of them are doing both, but that's where we see. And then, of course, the, the tenants is staying for longer, but that's where we see developers really believing in these technologies. Not so much for the sake of integrating technology, but because it's a sound investment.
0: And, and do you find that property managers are, are now kind of refactoring how they market those unit types? I know you said like kind of stretching the boundary of like, what's a studio, what's a one bedroom, what's a two bedroom. Do you find that they're now positioned in a much better place to market studios and one bedrooms as something else?
2: So one thing we're trying to do there is make sure that these apartments, even though they're built on top of an existing typology, whether it's a traditional studio or a one bed or a two bed, I'm talking about retrofits right now. Uh, We could talk about new buildings uh, later about how you design a whole building around us. But when you look at retrofits specifically, a studio that feels more like one bedroom, now you can call it a junior one bedroom, uh, which is something, by the way, that real estate already does with static solutions, but the idea of creating certain in-between layouts, a one bedroom plus them, uh, an alcove studio, et cetera. So we try to fall into kind of new naming kind of categories so that people understand that when they go to a building that has Ori, it's a new typology of an apartment. So they could go to traditional studios, one-beds or two-beds, or they could go into, in, into this in-between um, kind of spaces. Uh, so that's kind of what's been the most successful. We do try to avoid the idea of talking about, oh, this is a studio with an ORI system, because we are not selling products, we're selling a space. So you need to think about a space as, as a whole kind of product in itself. A space is the product, not, not the furniture or the robotics.
1: I think that's how we, we think. Um, it's interesting as you think about amenities and what's going on as amenities. Um, amenities are often these sort of appendages that, um, that show up further down the line uh, after DD phase or, or sometime when um, you know, a few developers think, oh, this is a great thing to add to, to our community. Maybe it's a stroller valet or maybe it's something um, more physical like a bowling alley or a golf simulator. Um, I don't. I don't necessarily categorize Ori as an amenity. I think about it as something that foundationally changes the way that you live and, and the opportunities that you have to live in your space. But to some degree, you're competing against amenities because amenities, you know, fit into certain line items. Um, how do you How do you handle that? How do you think about Ori in the context of you know the amenity war and, and what's going on in the market? I mean. I have to
2: admit, I, I get a bit frustrated about the whole amenities world. Uh, uh, and that's what I kind of call BS. Sometimes on kind of real estate because it's become almost ridiculous. I mean, I've seen arc- arcades, bowling alleys, uh, full-size basketball courts, like to the point where it's, it's interesting because it almost becomes just a marketing tactic. It's funny because uh, when you do a tour, and I've done a lot of tours of these buildings, 80% of the time is spent on the places where you're going to spend t- 20% or 10% or even less percent of the time but it becomes the whole like, let's overwhelm people with all these options that they will think that they will use, but they will never use kind of a thing. It it does have some effect and it's worked uh, to some extent, but at some point it doesn't work when every building is doing the same exact thing, which is what's happening. So I think our focus is really, if we were to call ourselves an amenity, it would be, I wouldn't mind it, but it would be more about amenities that you really use 80 or 90% of the time. In this case, in unit amenities, uh, when we think about apartments themselves, and that's kind of where we see ourselves. So yeah, there could be a little bit of a competition there in some sense, but I do think that COVID has helped in that case. I think there's been a realization from renters specifically that you know how spaces adapt to them and what to expect from spaces has become um, more, more important. Uh, now your apartment is a place where you not only go to sleep and watch Netflix, but you are actually, you know it's your gym, in the morning, it's your office. It's maybe your kindergarten. Uh, so people are realizing of the of the of the true kind of functional value uh, that these let's call you know in unit amenities could could have. Yeah,
1: totally, totally agree with you there. Um, very very similar line of thinking. What we're finding is that most of the developers who we speak with, uh, with with few exceptions, but most developers we speak with have. Um, the order of operations somewhat reversed in the sense that they will build an entire uh, design plan, they'll pour concrete, and then they'll say, hey, it's time for a brand, um, which is to me very different from any other consumer products in the world. Like you can imagine Dyson, um, you know, building a, a, a new vacuum, knowing that they need to build a new vacuum and then backing into developing highly innovative products for everyday households activities um it just doesn't work right so there is this sort of backwards game that's happening in development um when when do you typically get involved with developers when's an optimal time for you to get involved with developers and have you experienced the same sort of we're at the tail end of the of the design or or construction process and now we're thinking about something that's foundational to the user experience
2: i mean the sooner the better, of course. And, and that's why, I mean, the examples I gave you before are really examples where we came fairly late. You know, when you already have studio, one bedroom, two bedroom layouts done and you're just trying to make them better, you're kind of starting on top of something that it's okay. Let's put it this way. So you can make it better, but it's you, you, your, your foundation is not so strong. The moment you start thinking about earlier in the process, you know, that design stage, that's when the magic happens. Um, it happens when you think of a brand, but it also happens when it comes to designing spaces that are fully, you know, optimal from an ORI standpoint. And what I mean with that is that if you really look at designing your layouts, knowing that you have these technologies and these products at your fingertips, you start like basically thinking about space differently. You start shrinking unit sizes, but without shrinking any bit of functionality. The moment you do that, you can fit more apartments per floor plate, more apartments per building. You can kind of start offering more affordable rents, but it's still making you know great kind of price per square foot. Um, you know improvements on the on your underwriting. So those things start becoming you know an option once you truly embrace these things. Of course, what we see though is, and I, and I understand, you know, many developers in order to really be more bold and do something so early, they want to see more case studies of buildings that are out there. Which sometimes is tough because you're trying to show kind of the potential of something with a use case that is different, which is retrofit, but at least you need to create enough data and enough case studies so that it gives confidence. It's all about, you know, instilling confidence. And that's where most of our applications to date have been around taking existing layouts and making them better. But now we're starting to see examples. Uh, We have one specifically in Fort Worth, where we basically the developer completely changed the the floor plate design fitting many more units now and the underwriting of the whole building makes so much more sense now and it's much more attractive so we are getting there and that's definitely the big idea uh, of course the sooner the better to your question but then you also we need to realize that we need to generate certain kind of proof points and metrics uh, in the short term so that we can really play the long term the long term game
1: yeah it's I- it's exactly the same in, in our world um, when we work with clients, we, we do things quite differently. We're really focused on human-centered design, translating that human-centered design and, and consumer research into design decisions like, like incorporating an ORI or thinking about programming in a different way, um, taking those insights and translating them into brand and making sure that brand starts the process uh, rather than sits at the, at the tail end of the process. What we find in particular in, in changing behavior is that if you work with a partner or a client once, the second time around, um, there's an opportunity to really get involved in a more consultative fashion. Uh, are you finding that you've kind of gone through your rookie class of, of partners and now they're looking at, at follow-on developments and other projects and they're thinking differently about how to incorporate Ori? I, I mean, absolutely. I mean, we're we are exactly in that process.
2: I think the last the last two years have been like the tough you know, let's get those initial case studies and let's get to know each other. But now it's starting to see more and more projects like the one I just described where the developer is like, okay, I get it. You know, I get the demand is there. I get people are enjoying living with these solutions in a more traditional building. Let's kind of uh, take it to the next level. Uh, so we're starting to see it. Of course, that kind of innovation, you're going to always see it, adopt faster with local smaller developers first while the bigger developers are gonna be, uh, you know, looking at the data from the smaller local developers to kind of see what is mature and what it isn't, which is again, the same dynamics we see in any other industry. But that's kind of where we see kind of that adoption uh, starting to kind of go up. And and of course, still a lot to go, uh, but excited about about that progress.
1: And when you're working with these these groups, these um, the groups that are, are really, captivated by what you're doing and and they're bringing you in early on. How does your interaction work with with interiors and and architects?
2: So, I mean, to be honest, interior designers and architects, I mean, tend to be the the easiest to convince because these guys like love innovation, you know, at the end of the day, and and a lot of developers do too, but then the problem is the the LPs, you know, And, and the funding sources. So it always kind of, there's a moment where you kind of hit someone conservative in this process but in that kind of, uh, you know, chain of innovation, architects specifically, I mean, when they go to a school and college and everything, they're just born to kind of think big, you know? So they love these kind of ideas. So it's always about, you know, so it's usually not a problem to get that group engaged and dreaming about all the things that they can do. It's really more, you know, the key challenge is for us to really figure out those, those fi- pure financial kind of stories.
0: And do you ever run into the the design of these ORI units either being too modern or going against the grain of what the the interior team has kind of programmed or planned for the space?
2: I mean, absolutely. I mean, when when you think about interior designers, there's always going to be that question, like how much can you customize this? Uh, And my answer is that at the right volume, everything is possible. Uh, (laughs) Now, what what we don't do is like, if you're thinking of buying 20... 20 cloud beds or 20 pocket closets from Ori, you're just going to get the standard SKUs. Uh, you're going to get a couple of sizes, a couple of colors, so there's going to be some optionality. But if you really want to do something amazing, everything is possible. It's just about the right volumes because at that point, you know, we have figured out the technology so that we can make anything. It's just about when it makes sense for us to put the engineering time to create another SKU because it has a, a cascade effect when you think about supply chain and fulfillment, which is the, the hard thing of, of hardware, of course. Uh, and not software that you know customization and and you know production cycles are different to to software. Uh, but that is we do get that of course uh, from interior designers, everybody loves everything is subjective when it comes to interior design. so everything is possible, as I say, at the right moment.
0: i, I had I had to ask and that, that was that was a great answer, right I, as a <laughs> designer, you know you, you always think of like, oh well, this looks phenomenal, but what 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 can I influence slightly? Yeah. But uh, the, no, the, the good news,
2: though, I mean, and this probably helps us understand the, our technology approach here. Like, think about what we do. The, the core of what we do, the technology, is really like the muscle, the skeleton, and the brain of these systems. Now, the skins or clothing that you put on top, that's the furniture. And we had to create a set of designs to start with. Because if I just give you the muscle, skeleton, and the brain without any example it's really hard to understand what could be done. So that's where we had to take the first step. And as a technology company, actually do some furniture and do the whole package. But the way these things are designed, it's similar to to automotive industry, to the automotive industry in the sense that, I mean, you have the chassis of a car with all the technology and then you put this, I think they call them hats, but it's that idea of like, you can have different hats and different cars, but the the chassis is the same. So think about the same way uh, with our products, like every skin or clothing could be possible, but we did launch with a set of, of options uh, to make it easier for developers to choose from.
0: How did you come up with the original design? Because it's it so it's so beautiful, right? So as a designer, you go through like iterations and iterations. How did you so, land on what we see?
2: So to be honest, working with, with great designers. Uh, I mean, I'm not gonna take credit for that. Uh, like, like some of that is internal. Like for example, products like the pocket office was brewed internally by our VP of design. Uh, you know, Reed Finley, but then we had the cloud bed in my background, which is this beautiful kind of Scandin- Scandinavian looking kind of system it was designed by Ken Larson, one of our founders. Then we have also Yves Behar, a you know, great industrial designer on the West Coast, who actually not only designed our studio suite, but he actually designed our, our control interface um, and our logo, which I absolutely love. And it's the one thing that you see in every single product Uh, We wanted to make it iconic, almost like a a Nest thermostat, something that you will remember. And it has that Ori brand. So we definitely, you know, we have a lot of technology and, and of course, some design in-house. But we do try to connect and partner with with the best designers we find out there. And my dream, of course, is to not work with three or four designers. But what if a thousand designers, uh, people like you, Andrew, could start just playing with these things and creating
1: all types of versions of what we do?
0: Oh, you'll you'll get some crazy ideas.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Crazy, Crazy is good. You may have to take them one back. You don't know how Andrew's mind thinks. Um, it'll,
0: it'll be wacky.
1: It'll be wacky for <laughs> sure. All right, so let's let's talk about those dreams a little bit. So 15, 20 years, 10 years, even what what does it look like in the future? Yeah, so I mean we really what we really see
2: that is going to happen is that space efficiency as a topic, it's gonna to become its own category. There's been a lot of talk about space efficiency in the past with with things like, You know, Murphy beds or foldable tables, which we are all familiar with from our grandparents' apartment. But the interesting thing is that I I like this story because what many people don't know is that the first Murphy bed invented by Mr. Murphy uh, was basically invented only three years after the first car, the Model T. So when you look at mobility as a category uh, and how it has evolved, especially in the last 20, 30 years, electric, autonomous, on demand, and, you know, very cool, uh, especially if you have a Tesla, for example. And then you look at space efficiency, still manual, still cumbersome, still boring. So we do believe that there's going to be a whole kind of revolution because it's more needed than ever. Space efficiency used to be seen as something that, oh, you know what, I need that. I have that third room in my apartment that I want to make it a flex room. Fine. Or I, I, you know, like, that was fine. And, the, and those manual solutions actually worked for some of those, you know, every once in a while type applications. But the moment you think about a world that keeps urbanizing, where there's 200,000 people, more people every day in cities, spaces are going are to become smaller and space efficiency is going to be critical. So we do really want to be kind of that Tesla of space efficiency. And that means being much more than a product. That means, for example, going from, working with multifamily rental developers to working with student housing and senior housing, affordable housing, ADUs. It also means going from B2B, so selling to developers, all the way to selling to consumers. Like We get like a lot of people contacting us to the website wanting to buy an ordinary product. Uh, they get angry when we tell them that, that we don't sell to consumers, but that's definitely an area that we want to kind of solve for. Uh, And then also, as I said before, um, to Andrew's question, like really embracing the design community because furniture and interior design is a very mature but also subjective kind of industry. So what if we could embrace all that customization, all those options and really bring them into our ecosystem of technology that transforms the space? So I do see really Ori as a kind of multi-channel you know, multi-market strategy, also international markets, of course, and the U.S. is not even the the place where the biggest or or the the need is the most acute. Not that it's not acute, but think about Japan, think of Korea, Europe. So we do see multi-channel, multi-market, and really leading, you know, this whole kind of category that we believe it's critical for for sustainability and affordability in real estate in our cities.
1: That's great. That's awesome. So, so last question here, stepping outside of, of Ori, what, what do you see in real estate that makes you optimistic about the future? So,
2: I mean, the, the one thing I've noticed since we started the company, like I'm thinking about at the end of the day, I'm thinking about investment because, you know, there's always plenty of innovation and especially in this country, but then you need the resources and the support to bring those ideas kind of to market. Like when I was talking to investors five years ago and I was talking about like I don't know, things like hardware, furniture and, and real estate specifically, it was like a no, no. It was like, OK, what are you talking about? Like this is not where we invest. Now, when you kind of look now at what's going on with so many kind of, you know, prop tech funds showing up, a lot of sustainability funds showing up, also thinking of real estate. Real estate developers themselves investing a lot of money into innovation. Some of the big guys and creating funds to invest in innovation. That makes me optimistic because that means that you know ideas uh, that disrupt real estate or improve real estate are going to get funding and are going to push through kind of that that innovation innovation cycle. What we need, of course, is for real estate not to get scared about the hardest ideas. You know, because the hardest ideas and the ones that take the longest to to really make a difference, and not the quick wins of something that just gives you like benefit in the next three months, uh, those those kind of longer term ideas tend to be the ones that truly truly change the industry for the better. So that's what we need to make sure that you know that mentality you know is there uh, for long term. But but as I said, I'm I'm optimistic because I'm seeing more and more support, and in the last five years, it's been a it's been a huge difference. Uh, with especially talking to investors and the, and the sources of, of funding.
1: Well, thank you so much, Asier. This has been great. Uh, for the listeners, this has been a recording of No Contest by No Wall Studio. We'll see you next time.
0: Thanks again for listening to the No Contest podcast. For more information, make sure to follow us on social media or check us out at nowalls.studio.